Welcome to the Kelly Mental Health Podcast. I'm Linda Kelly, founder and CEO of Kelly Mental Health and Kelly Mental Health Foundation. Uh, I have with me today, Dr. Meg Van Dusen from, I now I was gonna practice this, but I just wanted to make sure I didn't get anything wrong here. So you're a licensed <laughs> clinical psychologist and mindfulness practitioner. I've uh, been in private practice since 1994. So tons of experience there. Um, one of the things that uh, was kind of sent along to us about you was that it's in a time of, uh, this isn't a time of great stress and disconnection in the US. And you are offering a lot of insights and solutions to help readers reconnect and live healthier lives. And one thing I love about this is just with the book that you have written, well, first of all, that first couple of chapters, I felt very sad reading it <laughs> because it just brought everything to light. It was incredible. Mm -hmm. So what motivated you to release a book about stress this particular year? Yeah, you know, and I wrote the book before the pandemic. Of course. <laughs> so it's been an added stressor. Um, you know, I really started seeing a change in my practice, um, and not just in my practice, but in my own personal life, in the lives of my friends and my family where anytime you ask people how they were doing, the common response was often, I'm so stressed out, I'm so overwhelmed. And then with regard to my clients coming into the therapy room, while everybody comes in, you know, talking about what is going on with them personally, what difficulty they might be having in relationships, and, you know, often people might be stressed, the focus of their stress was changing. Um, I was hearing more from people who were worried about mass shootings, who were worried uh, about global warming, who were worried about the future of our nation and how was there going to be, you know, a safe country or planet for their children. Um, I was seeing uh, loneliness increase dramatically, more and more people talking about how lonely they were. And then people coming in specifically wanting help with their addiction to technology, particularly their smartphones. So there were these themes emerging of loneliness and insomnia and tech addiction and um, you know, national and global stress that just made me feel like everything that I was treating, whether it was depression or anxiety or insomnia or loneliness, you know, kept coming back to this very general theme of stress in the United States, although we can talk about it uh, probably just as easily with regard to stress in Canada or stress in the UK or anywhere else. Um, and so I really started delving into the research um, and felt that people needed help. I mean, people that the majority of people living in the US were really stressed out. Um, the research was showing that. It was apparent in my practice. It was apparent among my colleagues. And it was apparent with my own teenagers. Um, so I just felt like we needed something to address the sort of the big issue of stress. And that, and, and that we needed to be able to break it down and look at it. Um, you know, with more detail and, and that people needed tools. You really do. I, I agree with that. And, and what you're kind of describing, and I want to come back to this, is almost this sense of existential dread that has set yeah. in. And it's so profound. But I, I want to come back to that. Maybe if you can just help me out and tell me, how do you explain the stress effect to your clients? Well, if we look at stress biologically, I mean, the thing to think about with regard to stress is that it's the brain and the body's response to a threat. And so, for example, you know, the stress response is good for us. It helps us preserve our lives. If a car is speeding down the road toward us, stress hormones kick in and we jump out of the way of the car and we don't get hit. Um, so what typically happens in the brain when we perceive a threat uh, is, you know, that the command center of the brain and body, which is the hypothalamus, gets a signal um, that, that there is threat and sends that, sends signals to the pituitary gland, which then re re uh, releases uh, ATCH, which is a stress hormone. Those sends, that sends signals to the 
adrenal glands, which release further stress hormones. And those stress hormones help us to activate our muscles and sharpen our vision and release glucose in the body. So we have energy to fight or flee the stressor, which is all good in the uh, situation of acute stress. But you can imagine that when we're experiencing, you know, horrible news every day, um, when we hear about mass shootings, when we hear about the fact that the planet is dying, when um, we have violence against um, particularly minorities and black people, when, um, you know, we are worried about healthcare here in our country, um, that those are pervasive chronic threats that never go away. And so that results in chronic stress. It results in an elevation of these stress hormones and uh, our body never really gets to reset. So after an acute stressor, it takes like 20, 30 minutes for the body to reset back to baseline and all is good. But with chronic stress, it really doesn't. And with elevated cortisol, which is the main stress hormone in the body, um, that is sort of the last to, you know, to kick in with, with a threat, um, that actually can create inflammation in the body. It creates heart disease. It causes, you know, cloudiness in the brain. We have more difficulty with cognitive function. We're more susceptible to anxiety, to depression. Um, it's, you know, it's called the silent killer for a reason because inflammation in the body creates mental and physical disease. So, that is, you know, what we're up against is really the chronic stress that is affecting people that they can't seem to reset because now everybody's brain is kicked into sort of hypervigilant mode, kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop. Right. So, you know, our, our minds and our bodies have evolved to uh, react to things that are, like you said, acute stressors, like, you know, a, a bear coming up behind you or, or a fight and attack that is uh, quickly over. Whereas all of the things that we seem to be facing now, we, those, you know, our muscles engaging and our heart pounding is not helping us <laughs> getting, right. a, getting a ding when you get an email. That's, you know, it's not going to help you to get uh, aggressive, right? You can't fight it off. Yeah, and that's a really good point. I mean, the smartphone, anytime it rings, dings, or pings, I mean, what the research has shown is it, it does set off the stress response. It also sets off dopamine in the brain, um, which is sort of the, the pleasure hormone that want, you know, causes us to want to go back for more, which is why we get addicted to our smartphones. Um, and that is an appendage, the smartphone. So you can just imagine that you know, every time it's ringing or dinging, you're raising your cortisol level. Mm -hmm. There is actually a, a really interesting thing that happens when I put my, my phone, which is right here in my hand, <laughs> when I put it on the airplane mode, there's a little bit of a stress response there of thinking, what am I missing? But then there's also this, ah, oh, I can't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you make a good point. There was a study that showed that, you know, when people are separated from their smartphones, the majority of people experience full-blown anxiety. Um, but yes, uh, like anything, you know, we can change a habit and after a while it becomes okay. You can actually be separated from your smartphone. Life goes on and you actually feel better. It's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, going back to that sense of that sort of existential dread where it seems like we are exposed more than ever before to things that we don't have any control over and things that are just pervasively bad. You know, yeah. we, don't, we don't have dings, you know, 15, 20 times a day telling us, oh, you know, something heartwarming happened, something wonderful. No, it's terrible. Yeah, right. So I know. How do you think that's contributed to people being more cynical and, and distressed? Well, I think it's huge. And unfortunately, I think, you know, a big part of that is the rise in social media. Um, it's a fact that social media does not make people feel better. Um, you know, it's the majority of people feel more depressed after they have spent time on their social media accounts. Um, the majority of people feel more anxious after they've spent time on their social media accounts. Um, there has become, not only are we, you know, 
super exposed all the time. Anytime we open our laptop or open our phone or, you know, even go to a restaurant we used to be able to, you know, mm-hmm. when there are TVs on the walls in some of these restaurants, you know, we are constantly exposed to the news, um, number one. Um, number two, we're constantly exposed to the um, personas that are being created via social media, which give people a, a false sense of reality that, that, you know, we're able to erase our flaws by doctoring our photos. We're able to, you know, delete what we want to say and rewrite it just perfectly so that there's no error. And as a result, people are comparing themselves to um, personas that are on social media. These are not, these are not accurate representations of human beings. And so people end up feeling quite terrible about themselves, um, which also raises stress. Because the other thing I should say about stress is that we have internal threats, which means we criticize ourselves a lot. That is a threat. When you say, oh my God, you're so stupid, or you, know, you need to lose weight, you know, you're getting so fat. Those are internal threats that people are delivering to themselves on a regular basis that are also raising stress hormones in the body. And social media does not help with that. Um, We are saturated with news and nobody's gonna set boundaries around that for us. We have to do it ourselves, which means we also have to set boundaries around technology because that's where we're getting the news. Um, And particularly with the smartphone because it's, you know, essentially with us all the time and we're attached to it. 99% of adults owning some sort of electronic device. Uh, and so that's you know, really important that people understand that they have to be intentional about this. It's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. And, and being intentional means actually giving this some thought, not just avoiding. A lot of us do just kind of avoid, even though we know it's a problem. Um, does this then lead into mindfulness in your practice? Yeah, you know, it's such a big thing. And people sometimes shy away from that word because it's like, yes. oh, my God, I don't have time to meditate. <laughs> Yeah, you know, one more thing you're asking me to do, or I'm supposed to just sit and do nothing when I have a huge list, you know. Um, but I talk, I kind of break that down in the book. I, I, I talk about sort of break and busting myths around mindfulness, because mindfulness is actually just paying attention in the present moment, non-judgmentally. Um, so you actually can be mind, practicing mindfulness and never meditate. Um, Although meditation is very good for the brain um, and it really combats stress. Mindfulness is just noticing where your mind is at any given moment. It could be sitting for 60 seconds and just listening to the sounds around you, tuning into the sounds that are happening right now in the present moment. It could be attending to the breath that's moving in and out of your body for 30 seconds. And just those brief moments of mindfulness have an effect on anxiety. They reduce anxiety, they reduce blood pressure. They can actually create clarity in the brain. I mean, there's so many studies on mindfulness that show how it benefits our mental and physical health. Um, But it's also key in setting boundaries because we are operating so unconsciously most of the time especially with our devices, you know, people, and I know you've seen this, people are pulling them out constantly, especially in elevators when they're for some reason uncomfortable standing next to somebody. <laughs> and, and, you know, nobody's doing anything. I mean, people are just doom scrolling. So it's about paying attention in the present moment. To say, oh, I picked up my phone. Do I need to pick up my phone? I'm trying to set boundaries around my phone. I'm actually going to put my phone down and I'm just gonna close my eyes for a minute and pay attention to my breath. Or I'm going to turn my phone off or I'm going to put my phone in another room for an hour. So we have to kind of slow down. We have to create some sort of pause in order to remember to do these things and then actually enact them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's interesting because then you tie that back together with when people actually do these things intentionally uh, and experience a whole lot of stress. Because I've certainly had times in my personal life where I have deliberately shut off my phone, said, no, I want to be alone. And then eventually a few hours later, I turn that phone on and I don't have any notifications and nobody was looking for me and I'm a little disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, we have gotten, I mean, you know, Jean Twenge out of San Diego State University has done a, a plethora of research on um, social media and the effects on the millennial generation, also Gen Z now, uh, in that, you know, the values have changed from uh, intrinsic to extrinsic. In other words, generation, the millennial and the Z gens um, are much more likely to look for ex external validation in order to feel a value. That's why money and fame are you know, quite popular um, among those two generations versus some of the older generations. And a lot of that seems to be correlated with the onset of technology, the smartphone and social media, once again, where our attention is being drawn to um, comparing ourselves with other people constantly. And so, yeah, your brain gets used to it. You're looking for likes, quote unquote, you know, and then you start to measure your self-worth by that, which is super dangerous. And yet you're not alone. I mean, um, it's not just millennials and Z-gens, obviously older generations do it as well. It's just that they're, um, they've just been taking the hit because, you know, they're more susceptible to it. Mm -hmm. I have, well, I have noticed even, you know, with my generation, we were growing up, we were very much exposed to much music and MTV. So we all wanted to be rock stars and <laughs> you couldn't tell us any different. We definitely were going to be rock stars. And nowadays, <laughs> nowadays, it's uh, my son said to me the other day, well, I want to be a YouTube influencer. And yeah. I said, no, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. Do you know how quickly they just shuffle through these poor influencers? <laughs> I know, and it's it's this idea of you know a quick way to make money, yeah, basically, right? That doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. That's concerning, and it's not to say that there isn't good stuff out there on YouTube. There is. I mean, you know, my kids have watched some really interesting um, YouTube videos, but there's a lot of stuff. That, I mean, you can get lost in the YouTube, you know, black hole, so to speak, where you're just going from one video to another. And there's just a lot of stuff that um, really reinforces it, this idea that in order to be of value, you have to quote unquote, um, have money or have fame. And um, that makes a lot of people feel pretty crappy about themselves. Absolutely. And, and the, the fight to stay relevant Right. They, that if people are not noticing you all the time consistently, that you're somehow less valued. Right. Right. And so we get really estranged from our relationship to ourselves. And so mm -hmm. I talk about that a lot in the book because, you know, things like loneliness, which is a stressor um, and it's an epidemic in, in the U.S. and around the world, um, you know, things like loneliness are really the, the, the way to address that is with regard to how you talk to yourself, how you are with yourself. Um, you know, one study showed that our negative self-talk was more damaging, more impactful to our loneliness levels, you know, than not having social circles or not having social interaction. And so when people went out and they attempted to get involved in things socially, um, the thing that changed their loneliness score, in other words, decreased it, was actually changing the way in which they talk to themselves more than changing their social circles. And it's not to say that we don't need people. My whole book is about, you know, um, attachment and our relationships to each other and how important they are. But the relationship to ourself is pivotal um, in understanding how to decrease stress. It's so true. And, and we talk about, I've talked a lot about how depression tends to be a, a sense of disconnection. And so, you know, loneliness always factors into there. Now in the book, you do talk about attachment quite a bit. You talk about the difference between secure, fearful, dismissive. Could you give us kind of just an idea of how to understand those terms? Yeah, so attachment refers to the psychological bond that we have with another person. We can also have psychological bonds to groups. And as I talk about in the book, or to our nation, as we personify nations as parental figures, like father of our nation or the motherland. Um, but attachment formation begins when we're infants. And it's formed 
by the relationship we have with our primary caretaker, which is usually our parent. And so the quality of that connection, that means whether our parent or parents were attuned to us as babies, informs what kind of attachment style we're gonna end up having as children, teens, and adults. And basically there's either secure attachment, which means um, in a nutshell, um, your relationships are, it's, they're much more easy to navigate, you have better mental health, um, you're, less, you're more likely to sleep better, for example, you're less likely to have depression and anxiety, for example, when you have secure attachment. Um, when you have insecure attachment, and there are, are three different kinds of insecure attachment, um, life doesn't go so well. Um, you know, you might have trouble in your relationships. You have trouble regulating your emotions. So the quality of care with our parents when we're babies actually affects brain development and more specifically affects that hypothalamic pituitary axis that I sort of stumbly explained in the beginning, um, which is the main system in the body for regulating stress. So you can imagine if we're not having attuned responses from those caregivers as babies, our hypothalamic pituitary axis is not going to operate well physiologically, and we're going to be much more susceptible to stress. We're gonna be less resilient. So in terms of insecure attachment, um, we might have what's called an anxious preoccupied attachment. That means that we are um, essentially anxious. We're you know, needing the other person um, for validation. You know, I, I give examples in the book of you know, somebody who constantly needs to find out where their boyfriend is if he's not calling every other minute, you know, and is worrying that you know, somehow they're not okay if he's not validating them. We also have avoidant attachment and there are two kinds of avoidant attachments. There's dismissive avoidant. And that's typically when we uh, might have a caretaker, a parent, who actually really doesn't tend to our needs at all, who sort of dismisses them, doesn't respond to the baby when the baby's crying, for example. So the baby grows up denying its own needs. Um, and those are people who basically say they're fine, they don't need anybody, um, sort of are in denial, um, but may have you know, a lot of struggles with mental health. Um, then there is fearful, um, uh, avoidance, which is um, when babies have really profoundly inconsistent parenting. So they might have a parent who one minute is super compassionate and the next minute is verbally or physically abusing them. And so they learn to crave um, comfort from that caretaker, but also fear that parent at the same time. So it's very confusing for those people. And those are the people that are really, you know, sort of want to get close and then push you away, want to get close and push you away. Um, and so those are the three different kinds of uh, insecure attachments and then there's secure attachment. And why this is so important to stress is that when we have secure attachment, we're more resilient to stress. The good news about all of this is that even though you form your attachment style from infancy, it's not set in stone and you can change your attachment style um, through the kinds of relationships that you end up being in, um, including the therapeutic relationship uh, later in life. So even if you have a, you know, anxious preoccupied attachment, you can, that can change to a secure attachment uh, if you have a healthy relationship that influences you. Mm -hmm. And that's gotta be really a, a difficult thing to do uh, even once you are aware of those attachment types within yourself to try to change those patterns. Well, this is again where mindfulness comes in because the core concept of mindfulness is compassionate, non-judgmental present awareness, which is essentially the definition of attunement. And attunement, once again, is the main concept in attachment theory. So think about it this way. Um, if we sit and we are being mindfully aware of, let's say, what we might be feeling in any given moment, oh, there's sadness. 
I'm, you know, I'm here for you. You might say to yourself, I see the sadness. You're being mindfully aware of your emotion. You're non-judgmental about it. You might even give yourself some compassion. That's the kind of thing that helps uh, form secure attachment between a parent and a child. So you can do that for yourself and end up working uh, to create more secure attachment just by being mindfully present with your own self, by developing that kind of non-judgmental compassionate relationship with self. So there are plenty of studies that show that people who practice mindfulness, their brains, their neuronal pathways are very similar to people who have secure attachment. Um, so I, I say that because there's a ton of hope, you know, even if you've had a very traumatic childhood, don't think that all is lost. Um, you know, there are so many ways to create secure attachment, um, even if you, you know, didn't start off uh, with that in life. Mm -hmm. I, I love that you say that because there's a, a lot of people, especially because they they get stuck in those patterns and then they do try to fix it and then they get pulled back in again and it feels a little, uh, you know, feels a little like we're broken. Yeah, and, and exactly. And that's not true. No, it's not true. It's not true. I mean, everybody's got their stuff. Even people with secure <laughs> attachment are not, you know, life is not peachy keen. Um, so everybody's got their stuff. And I think, and that's, it brings me to another thing that I talk about in the book, because I think releasing judgment is so key to reducing stress. And so the more that you can just be with what you're struggling with and not judge yourself as inadequate, the better life is going to go for you. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's an exercise that we use quite a bit, and it's just about seeing the world non-judgmentally, which plays right into your mindfulness practice. And uh, what's really interesting a lot of times is I'll have people come back and they can't not judge. It's like there, it's difficult sometimes to identify what is judgmental language. Uh, for example, I might have someone that uh, struggles with their eating habits and they come in and they say, Oh, you know, I ate badly this week. I said, Oh, bad, <laughs> bad is a judgment, right? Yeah. Did right. you, did you eat, you know, a lot more than you planned? Well, that's not really a judgment. That's more of a fact. It's and a fact, right? So it can be difficult. I'm, I'm curious then how you can sort of coach people to understand what is judgmental thinking versus non-judgmental. Yeah, I like that exercise. That's, you know, it's really important to kind of raise awareness of, you know, I talk about it as looking at oneself with curiosity versus criticism. Um, so being curious, like, well, I ate more than I planned this week. Wonder what that was about. Um, what was going on with me? Was I, was I feeling particularly worried about something? Um, you know, what was happening? Being curious about what informed that eating um, rather than just, as you say, having sort of the slap judgment of I was bad, you know? Uh, and when you're curious about, you know, your behavior, essentially, it's not good or bad. It's just your behavior and what's driving it. Um, you get to know so many things about yourself. And it really helps to form that loving relationship that you may not have had um, as well as you could have used um, in your own upbringing, right? And so you can do that with yourself. Mm -hmm. So just kind of being, being gentle with yourself, being forgiving of yourself and compassionate as opposed to uh, overly judgmental or critical. And now some people would come back and say, no, we got to man up, you know, we got to, <laughs> we got to be tough, because this is silliness. And what would you say to that? Well, I think a lot of people get confused around compassion and yes. see it as sort of boundaryless and letting yourself off the hook or something. Yeah. And it's really not that. So I talk in my book about compassionate boundaries. You know, compassion is really just feeling for your situation. It's, it's saying, you know, yeah, you ate more than you planned this week. And likely it was because you were feeling, you know, really sad about that breakup. Um, and so, you know, let's, you know, get back on the eating is a bad example, because you know, <laughs> I, I, I have my own thoughts about, you know, not wanting people to get caught in the in the diet cycle. But, mm -hmm. you know, let's get back on the plan, whatever the plan is. And, um, you know, start over. That's just fact. It's about setting the boundary. Or you might have compassionate boundaries with other people. 
where you know somebody says, hey, can you pick up my son from school today? I, I'm not going to be able to make it. And you're stressed because you have too many things to do already. Um, and while you, you know, might literally be able to pick up that child from school, it's not good for your mental health because it's one more thing on your list. And so you say, I'm so sorry that you're struggling with that. I've been there and yet I am not able to help you today. I, I actually just saw, I went to double check the book at uh, the, this morning and I saw that exact part and I thought, oh, oh that is interesting because many of us do have that, that issue with feeling like if we aren't giving of ourselves, like, hey, you know, what's so important about me sitting at home when someone actually does need help? Why can't I give more of myself? But then if we do that, we can end up resentful. We can feel sort of uh, depleted. And so right. how, do, how do you make sense of that then? Is that not unkind to say no when someone needs help? Not if you're compassionate. It's, it's, it's the idea of being able to be you know, empathetic toward another person's situation, but not feeling like you have to fix it. Mm. That's, you know? that's a huge one. I'm not, yeah. yeah, not feeling responsible for someone else's what's, what's on their plate. Not feeling responsible, right. Um, and certainly if you've hurt their feelings or if you've done something you know, uh, intentionally or unintentionally that negatively affects them, you know, you, you, again, you can be impassionate, you can be compassionate, you, you can, you know, apologize and all of that, but you don't need to be running around doing a million things to make up for that. Does that make sense? Um, and sometimes people get caught in that, particularly people who are anxious. Mm -hmm. And then they do get overloaded and you're right. And it breeds resentment. Um, and, and what happens when people are resentful? Well, then they get angry. Mm -hmm. And that can certainly uh, sort of poison relationships. Right, right, leaving, absolutely. Probably leaving you feeling more lonely in the end. Right, right. Yeah, because people aren't being honest, which is the other thing I talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really okay to be honest. And again, if, you're, if you know how to speak compassionately, honesty is freeing, you know, it's freeing. You don't, you don't, yeah, you don't have to, you know, just try to please um, other people all the time, but you, you can be kind and not be into this people pleasing thing um, and just be honest about your boundaries and what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do. Mm -hmm. And that can be a beautiful thing just to be honest with yourself and to be honest with others. And, you know, this isn't me being unkind. This is me saying realistically, I don't have the resources to do for this person or to, to do more than, you know, what's right in front of me. And, but some people then will face backlash. Not everyone has that most, you know, healthy dynamic in relationships. Right. How, how would you have someone respond when the people they say no to, they react very poorly? Yeah, I think it's really important. I work with, with people a lot on, you know, what's called differentiation. And that is to remember that people might have negative reactions, but that's not necessarily a reflection of you. It's a reflection of whatever is going on inside of them, right? They may have, uh, you know, pushed uh, themselves too far up against a deadline and now they want you to help them study for the test or something. And, you know, you don't want to do that. You want to actually go out to dinner with your other friend. And while you could do that, you're choosing not to do that. And so you're letting them know that and they get angry thinking, you know, well, you're choosing just to go out to dinner with this friend, not help me with this really important, you know, exam. You must like her better than you do me. And, you know, I'm never going to help you with anything again. And I think it's important if a person reacts like that, that you understand that their anger was brewing before you ever came onto the scene. Um, that's not something that is a reflection of you. Um, it's being able to be a separate person in that sense. Mm -hmm. And that, that is definitely a skill that has to be worked on. I'm betting. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, it's, it's, I think it's one of the biggest skills that, you know, I work with people on in therapy. Mm -hmm. We are, we are such social creatures. It does matter to us that we are accepted. That's, you know, that, that, you know, obviously would have gone into our survival 
And yeah. so I, I think it does strike something very, uh, very sensitive within us when we face rejection from people. But what you say is so it's so right that this is coming from them. It's about their relationship with themselves or what they're going through. And you don't have to own that either. Mm -hmm. You can be compassionate. You can say, gosh, I'm sorry. You are so stressed about that test. You know, I really hope it goes okay for you. And yet I have these plans I, I want to do. I, you know what I like about, about that as well. It's different from sort of um, you know, sometimes pop psychology will tell us, nope, stand your ground, cut off the toxic person, you know, um, or, or talk back, have exactly the right thing to say, like the movies tell us we should. I, I could never think of the right thing to say. It would be days later. <laughs> <laughs> but the way, the way that you sort of illustrate that is it's very interesting because it's sort of gentle. It's soft. It's, yes, I accept how you feel. It is you're not wrong for feeling how you feel, but I, I still doesn't change, doesn't change what I have to say. It's kind of like trying to tell a child it's, it's time to leave the park and they're freaking out and you go, I know that feels really, really sad for you. Now, would you like to be carried? Or are you going to walk? And I think exactly. that was in your book as well. <laughs> right. right, right. Yeah, really, yeah, really interesting. That Having that tone of voice, by the way, um, in terms of attachment theory, there have been studies on that, particularly with regard to psychotherapy mm. um, and how important that tone of voice is, that gentle, calm tone of voice. Um, it's, as you can imagine, right? It's soothing. Um, it's not the, it, yelling raises stress hormones, you know? Um, I am not doing that, is, is jarring. You know, automatically we tense up when we hear that kind of loud yelling voice. Um, and we are human, we are human as parents, as friends and partners. And, you know, you know, many people are going to yell, it's understandable. But if you can train yourself to try to speak in that calmer, gentler tone, it's not only good for other people's stress levels, it's good for your own. Absolutely. I, I have to ask, you know, with your practice this year, have you noticed people really struggling with setting boundaries, especially when it comes to masks and politics and all of these things that are so distressing? Well, people, you know, the pandemic has been just an enormous stressor um, and politics here have been off the charts. I mean, you know, I think 87% of Americans were worried about the election. Um, so, in terms of stress, stress has skyrocketed this year, um, particularly among our youngest generation, the Gen Zs, I should say, the youngest generation that's been measured. Um, their stress level went from on a 10 point scale, for example, 5.6 to a 5.8 up to a 6.1 this year. And a lot of it just had to do with too many things at once. So initially, when we had the stay-at-home orders, I noticed skyrocketing levels of anxiety. That's people kind of aimlessly bouncing off the walls, perpetually worried, but unable to say exactly what they're worried about. Um, then it kind of moved into depression, where people just felt helpless and hopeless. And then some people moved into grief around all the loss, including the illumination of systemic racism here, which has been another huge stressor. It's not that it's not always been around. It's just that we have video that illuminates some really horrific things that are happening in our country, um, you know, with regard to racial minorities. That has been really stressful. Um, and so there's been a lot of grief too that, that I've, you know, helped guide people through during this time. But with regard to boundaries, um, I think now, especially now that we're seeing the, you know, second wave or third peak, whatever you want to call it in the coronavirus, um, you know, people are so tired and there are, you know, some people are angry and some people, you know, take that out on our, um, you know, governors or mayors or whomever. And uh, yeah, some people, I mean, you know, I was walking down the sidewalk the other day with my mask on and I was talking on the phone and I was not aware of a gentleman who was walking toward me and he stopped in the middle of the sidewalk uh, and uh, then sort of snapped at me and said, thanks a lot for moving. So people are testy, people are upset. People are like, you know, get out of my space. You're too close. 
you know, or there are people who are just defiant and just, you know, not wearing the mask in certain places, you know, or, you know, are just saying, well, we have to get together as family, you know, because they're, they're understandably lonely. We're going to do it anyway, even though it's ill-advised. So, of course, people are bending boundaries, um, you know, because what is being asked of us, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but what's being asked of us is uh, something that we have never in our lifetimes experienced before for so long, you know, to keep distance, to not hug people, to stay inside, to not have our daily rituals that we're so used to, to not, you know, be able to see our family, to not be able to fly across the country, to not be able to take a reasonable vacation it's hard. And so understandably, people are struggling in that way, if that's what you meant. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's so big. It's a difficult question even to, to ask. Just curious to hear your, uh, your perspective on that and what's been coming out. I know um, I have certainly had a lot of people in my practice talking about the same, the world issues, the, you know, as particularly with climate change, with politics, with uh, even just what kind of world is going to be left for us and for our kids? Uh, you know, the soil is depleting and we may have less than 60 seasons left if they keep doing things the same way. There's such big, big things going on. There are, and that's where I talk about cultivating hope because it's so easy to just feel resigned. And people often think hope is sort of like a wish or something, and it's not. It's actually, there's a formula to hope and it requires action. And I think what's important just, you know, with regard to the neuroscience of our brains is to understand that when we are engaged in a task, when we are taking action on something, we're using the prefrontal cortex and we're disengaging the part of the brain um, which is responsible for rumination usually negative rumination or worry. And so making some goals for yourself, um, things that you can actually affect, creating some steps towards those goals, even within the confines of the pandemic, there are plenty of things people can work on and work toward. Um, make a difference. It, it, it raises people's hope levels when you do that. Uh, and people end up actually doing good things for the world so true I learned to knit this summer (laughs) (laughs) and I thought I had to do something productive and and there you go there it was all YouTube (laughs) (laughs) yeah right right Right. right. but but that's true if we can disengage that part of the brain that is is so stuck and and cycling and feeling so resigned and and I guess ineffectual and even just putting ourselves into the space where we're, we're doing something, anything, we're taking action. What a difference it feels. It feels like we're so much more accomplished. Well, we saw that a lot in our election here this year. Um, Obviously voter turnout was off the charts and we saw so many people getting involved in politics, taking action, making phone calls, going door to door, doing things like that, that they normally wouldn't do. Um, that not only helped them, but, you know, helped the uh, election, uh, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, it, I mean, it was, I'll, I'll be blunt <laughs> that, you know, Donald Trump is a bad attachment figure. And so the mental health of our nation um, really has been struggling um, in part as a result of those four years. It sounds like it. It's we were obviously watching from Canada with a lot of attention and, and just on high alert, um, there's many people here that hope the borders never reopen. There's people here that are separated from family members in, in the U.S. and are really suffering because of it. Um, it just, it feels like a mess. And, and, you know, not only that, but we're close to the border here in Thunder Bay. So, yep. and, but we're not really close to other Canadian cities. Winnipeg's eight hours away. Right. So our version of fun is to hop across the border, go down to Duluth or Minneapolis and go shopping a lot of people are terrified to do that now well not that you can we can't no you can't you can't i know we're really close to the border here too in seattle you know just a couple hours from vancouver um and it's a very popular destination you know for seattleites um no it's really very sad Mm -hmm. and um i have hope 
I have hope that um, we're trying to get ourselves righted um, after being upside down here. Um, and I have hope that we can repair um, some of our relationships around the world um, with our allies. And uh, I hope that things go better, but it's going to take a while. I, I agree. <laughs> there's uh, there's just so, so much going on and such rifts have been created and, and then the stress. But if we look at world history, we've been through worse. Um, we've been through some tough times. I yeah. think what's different about this period of time is that there are existential threats like global warming that we yes. didn't have before mm -hmm. and that we have so many stressors at once. And I think we see it in the Gen Z's mental health. Um, because the majority of them are depressed or anxious. 60% um, report depressive symptoms, 54% report anxiety symptoms. And I think that was a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. um, that study. Um, you know, they are really suffering because in their lifetime, they've never known a world before 9-11. They've never known a world... Um, without all of this, without global warming, without mass shootings, you know, without, um, you know, lockdown drills in their school, you know, my, I think I wrote in a book, you know, my kids have more lockdown drills for mass shootings in their young life than I had earthquake drills growing up in California. Um, it is there, it's understandable why they're stressed. And so I do think it's our job to help cultivate hope for them. Um, to really help them with this idea of widening the lens and look and helping them with what they can do um, because so many of them just feel like they're at the mercy of terrible circumstances. Absolutely. And what are you, what are your, your advice for parents that are, are dealing with this and parents that are feeling that threat themselves? Yeah, I mean, whew, God, there's so much to go into there. I would say one thing that I repeatedly talk about is... Um, you know, addiction to technology and um, for parents to be empathetic uh, with their kids and teens around that. We put the devices in their hands. They didn't just pull them from the sky. Um, and the devices are highly addictive. It's just a neurobiological thing. It sets off dopamine. You know, there's a rush. They're exposed to social media. They're exposed to the internet in ways that you know, um, they're exposed to things that are too big for their brains um, many times and it's overwhelming. And so yelling at your team to get off of the device um, is understandable, but hypocritical. <laughs> <laughs> and so try, just try to, as stressed as, as parents are, and I completely relate because I have a 16 year old still, the older son is in college, um, that, you know, we have to be empathetic and we have to just set matter of fact boundaries there, number one. Um, number two, it, it, get your kids outside more. Um, it really makes a difference in our mental well being. Nature decreases the stress hormone cortisol, but it also increases a sense of connectedness. This has been studied out of UC Berkeley. You know, people feel more connected and less lonely just by walking um, down a path of trees, honestly. Um, People are more generous when they're out in nature. Um, people are less anxious when they're out in nature. So it's a good thing to do for your child's mental health um, is I think about the tech thing less as saying get off the screens and more about, you know, creating some things that are sort of absolutes that you got to get outside every day for an hour or two you, you know, um, got to do some sort of non-screen activity, play some music, do anything else but the screen. So looking more toward what you can do that brings about well-being for your kid. And then um, really encourage kids to uh, get involved. Um, again, we're in a place where extrinsic values, the money fame dragon is a big thing for this generation and kids sense of self-worth and actually empathy has really decreased. And so really, you know, having conversations with them, um, looking them in the eye, taking time just to talk about stories about your own life. You know, you, you, you don't, it doesn't have to be, just take time and be with them so they can have um, that interpersonal interaction that's in, in the flesh that's live um, rather than via social media. Um, 
as a way to help them. And then I would say to their worries about the planet, um, it's not over. And uh, there are things that we can do every day. There are things that we can do to slow global warming. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. That's, that's very helpful. And I think would be helpful for a lot of our listeners that are struggling with exactly what, what to do and what to say. And sometimes we all do that. We just get off the screen, put it down. And yet there we are watching reruns on Netflix and things that we really don't need to be doing, but we're doing it too. So having that sort of deliberate time set aside where we go out, we go do something together, we go be in nature if we can, that would make a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And what's one thing that you do part of your routine to keep your stress levels manageable? (laughs) <laughs> just one thing. I exercise uh, six days a week. I mean, I exercise almost every day. Um, be, and, you know, the thing about exercise is it regulates mood hormones. Um, it's good for our telomeres, um, which are the little caps on the ends of our chromosomes that determine our longevity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many good things about exercise. Um, but the most important thing with regard to our topic here is that it reduces stress. So I do exercise every day and I meditate every day as well. Uh, And I just, it it is hard to establish that habit, I understand, but once you get it established, then it just becomes like clockwork. And those two things are kind of my staples I do, um, you know, daily. I also try to get outside as much as possible um, because it's, you know, the research is true. You know, you don't have to live in some beautiful environment. You don't have to have, you know, take a a two-hour trip to the mountains to go for a hike in order to get that um, nature benefit. You can go outside on your porch and look up at the sky um, and get that benefit of just having a sense of being able to exhale and feeling a little bit better. So I really recommend that. And that's something that I do uh, several times a week. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for coming onto the podcast and, and telling us so much good advice. I, I appreciate it so much. Uh, Dr. Meg Van Dusen, now uh, your book, Stress in the U.S., can be found, I've, I've seen it on Amazon and also uh, on Kindle, um, anywhere else that it's being. Yeah, Barnes, it's everywhere, barnesandnoble.com. You can, you can find it anywhere online if you're, if you're not an Amazon person, which I understand. Um, <laughs> So if you want more information about the book, or I also have a blog, which is called Sight on Stress, just with various tips and things about stress, you can go to megvandusen.com. That's D-E-U-S-E-N. Thank you, Linda. I, I love your podcast. I think you're doing great things for the world. Well, thank you so much. It's been, uh, it's been a delight. I appreciate being able to finally talk, talk to you face to face. And uh, I'm going to pass on a lot of this advice to a lot of people. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.